I dare say all of us understand that, that different occasions often require different kinds of dress, a different wardrobe. For example, we normally, if we go to a wedding, we wear light clothes. If I go to a wedding, I wear a blue suit. If I go to a funeral, I wear a black suit, if I can still fit into it. If you're a member of the armed forces, you wear a uniform that identifies you. You don't wear street clothes. If you're a doctor, when your patients see you, you're likely dressed in a white smock or something that is white. Not always. But if it's not white, it'll be something else that's uniform, something that identifies you. If you are a lawbreaker and you are arrested then there is a special wardrobe for you provided free of charge by the penal system of our state or our nation. And when folks leave prison, when they walk out that door for the last time, before they leave, they set aside the old prison clothes and they put on street clothes, normal clothes, to blend in with everybody else. It's normal. We expect that. In Ephesians 4, Paul is explaining to us that when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, when they become a child of God, an amazing transformation happens. And along with the invisible, internal change of the heart, something external changes as well. What they wear on the outside is now consistent in growing measure to that which identifies the truth of who they are on the inside. They put on, as Paul says, we were taught, with regard to your former manner of life, to put off the old self, which which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In other words, put on holy living. Put on Christ. When we came to Christ, we were not just to put on a new way of thinking. We understood, if we heard the gospel rightly, that we were also supposed to put on a new way of living. A new approach to life that would appropriately reflect the amazing and miraculous calling by which each of us has been called. We're not to hold on to a naked theory of salvation, but rather display the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through our lives to display the gospel in full dress. Now, in our day, there are many who advocate what we call a cheap grace that grants sinners eternal salvation but makes no, absolutely no demands on their lives. They can live as unholy as they want to be. These teachers have taught generations of people to believe that the gospel is all about making a profession of faith and that somehow if God were to require us to obey his word, it would amount to some kind of grace-diminishing legalism. And it's just not so. The God who has the power to speak salvation in your life also has the power to make you holy. Let's not shortchange him. 
He will make you holy. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's doing a work in you if you're a child of God. And by the way, the Apostle John put this whole matter to rest when he wrote 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, that pretty well settles it, doesn't it? You see, there's often a great difference between saying you have come to know Christ and actually knowing him. You may say that you know Christ, but do you really know him? How do I know? Well, one of the ways you know is look at the outside of your life. Has there been any change? Is there any holiness there that wasn't there before? Our lives begin to display the characteristics that are strikingly similar to Christ's. We begin to dress like Christ. We begin to dress our life. It begins to be dressed in robes of righteousness. In preparation for the day when we see him and he hands us the robe of righteousness, that we'll all stand before him wearing white garments, white as snow, because we've been purified in him. So before we ever speak the gospel, it is incumbent for us to live the gospel. Knowing the gospel, embracing the gospel, speaking the gospel must come along with living the gospel, wearing the gospel. We need to set it on display in full dress by the way that we live. Now, up through verse 24, Paul's been speaking in general terms about the need for us to do this. But beginning in verse 25, he starts to give some very specific instructions. And the rest of the book is like that. The first three chapters of the book, as we have said many times, is all theology. It's doctrine. It's teaching us who we are in Christ, telling us who the church is. There aren't any commands there. But then in chapter 4, he starts to tell us what implications those truths ought to have in the way that we live in our practical everyday lives. And so from here on, basically it's all practical teaching about how we are supposed to live now that we have been called by this miraculous and eternal calling. And that's why Paul starts in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk or to live or to dress in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Beginning in verse 25, he starts to get very specific about the instructions he has for us in terms of how we live. In fact, he offers four characteristics, I think, that dress our lives with the gospel. Four things that dress our lives with the gospel. Four very, very practical issues of life that ought to be ours in the way we live so that when people see us, they say, hmm. Something different about him. Not sure what it is. Something's different about her. They live a little differently than everybody else. They're a little more, I don't want to say holier than thou, but maybe just good. They just seem to be good. They're just good people. Don't know what it is about them. What are those things? Four of them. Number one. Our lives should be characterized by, number one, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. Now let's look at this, starting in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
You see, since we have embraced the ultimate truth in the person of Jesus Christ, it makes sense that we should now speak the truth. We have embraced the truth. Now we speak the truth. That's what it means to live up to the life that God has called us to. In fact, Colossians 3, 9 and 10 makes this explicit. Do not lie to one another, he says, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Don't lie. Why? Because something miraculous has happened to you. You're not the person you used to be. Things have become new for you. You're a new creature. You've laid aside the old self. The moment you trusted Christ, the old self was out. The new, the new self was in. And the Holy Spirit was presiding over it all. You see, Paul viewed lying as a dominant characteristic of the old life. Lying is a dominant characteristic of unbelief. We were liars who were utterly and completely lost. We spoke lies because we believed the lies that were fed to us by the ultimate liar, Satan himself. Now, none of this should exist among followers of him who is the truth. If we have come to know the one who is the way and the truth and the life, then laying aside the old habit of lying should be the most natural thing in the world for us. We don't lie anymore. We tell the truth. Even to our own hurt, we tell the truth. Children, this is especially important for you to learn. It's especially important for you to learn. In our household, there, is, there are a lot of things that we haven't done well, but one thing that by God's grace we have is we have been absolutely intolerant of lying. You can ask any one of my children, what happens in your house if mom and dad catch you lying? And they will tell you. There are three things that we do that I won't share from the pulpit. But it tends to curtail lying. And it's something special that we do just for that. We tell our kids, lying is bitter. It's bitter. People hear lying, it's, it's bitter. It's not sweet. It's not nice. It's not good. It doesn't honor the Lord. We need to teach you to tell the truth. Always tell the truth, even if you think you're going to get in trouble, even if you know you're going to get in trouble. Because, listen, you can either get in trouble for doing what's wrong, or you can get in trouble for doing what's wrong and lying about it. Sometimes explaining it doesn't make any difference, but eventually it sinks in, the importance of telling the truth. Our whole legal system, by the way, is built on whether or not people tell the truth. That's why when people come before the judge, they used to put their hand on the Bible. I'm not sure they do that much anymore. But you have to swear, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why? Because the whole legal system breaks down if people who take the witness stand don't tell the truth. In the body of Christ, it's even more important. None of us should be known as a person who is undependable in what he says. We need to lay aside all lying. The term laying aside means stripping away or casting off. It's the same word that's used in Acts 7, 58, 
when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem laid aside their coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul as they prepared to stone another young man by the name of Stephen. They laid aside their outer garments so they could be more free to do their wicked work. And what Paul is telling us is that the Christian lays aside falsehood because falsehood, among all these other things, falsehood encumbers us. It keeps us from being able to do the work that God has called us to do. It short circuits the spiritual wiring in our lives so that we can't function the way we should. And notice, why is lying forbidden? Why is lying forbidden? Now, this may surprise you. Certainly, it's because it's a sin against God, but that's not the reason that Paul gives. That's not the reason that Paul gives here. It is forbidden because it is a sin against what? The church. Isn't that interesting? He says this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth to one another, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are what? Members of one another. We're members of one another. This is a sin against the church. One of the primary themes in Ephesians is the church, and we've looked at that again and again. And Paul's favorite metaphor for the church is, as you know, the body, the human body. Now imagine what it would be like if parts of the human body became, began lying to each other. If our brain were suddenly to start giving false signals to our feet, who knows where we'd end up, what we would walk into. If it falsely reported hot and cold, we would freeze to death because we felt warm or be scalded in a hot shower because we felt chilly. If our eyes decided to send false signals to the brain and we came to a dangerous curve while we were driving, we may think we're on a straight road. If our brain was lying to our eyes, if the nerves in our hands and our feet failed to tell our brain that injury was occurring, that you were getting burned or crushed or stabbed, it would cause serious damage. In fact, if you know anything about Hansen's disease or leprosy, as it's often called, that's the whole problem. Your nerves become insensitive, and so you start injuring yourself. And, and lepers were known for losing fingers and even losing limbs because they, they weren't getting the right signals. The brain wasn't giving the right signals. Leprosy causes a person's body to lie against itself. It damages the whole body. That's what happens in the church. People start lying to one another. You start slipping one past each other. You don't tell the truth about where you are in your walk with the Lord. Someone comes to you and says, how's your faith? How's your time in the Word? Oh, it's good. It's good. But it's not good. What are you doing? You're lying. It's not good. You're struggling. In fact, you're not even struggling. You're wallowing. And we say, oh, we're doing fine. Doing fine. What can I pray about? Oh, nothing. Everything's good. It's not good. You're really struggling. Don't lie. Speak the truth to one another. So the Lord wants us to resolve to be known as people who speak the truth, 
If you say something, let it be yes, yes, or no, no. No need for swearing. No need for saying, I swear by Pastor Dan's office that what I'm telling you is the truth. The truth. I mean, that's how ridiculous it was in the first century in Jesus' day. I swear by the temple. Well, swearing by the temple wasn't as significant as, as if you swore on the Holy of Holies in the temple or on the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And so you can lie a little bit by swearing. Don't be like that. Jesus said, don't swear. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. We should be known as people who speak the truth. On the other hand, liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's an interesting verse in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 8. The Apostle John says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Who's going to be there? A lot of people are going to be there, but liars are going to be among them. Don't be a liar. Speak the truth. Not only that, but true believers should lay aside lying because liars speak the language of the devil. Did you know that? came across this one day. We were... It's reading to my children, John 8, which is a precious passage of Scripture, just because Jesus reveals so much about himself and his, his own holiness. Talk about being angry without sinning. This is an example of that. But in the NIV, we read in John 8:44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's an interesting way of looking at it. It's not the only way to translate that, but it's a profound word picture for us, especially when we're trying to train our children and train ourselves about the significance of telling the truth Listen, when you came to know the Lord, you were transformed into a new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, they speak a new language. It's called truth. In the old kingdom, the language that was spoken was lies. And if you, who now live in the kingdom of truth, are going to speak lies, then you're speaking the language of the devil. That's his native language. He's the father of lies. Most of us don't consider ourselves liars, but consider. The lying includes not just statements that are patently false, but exaggeration, adding falsehood to that which begins to be as truth, cheating in school, or your income taxes. All of it is a form of lying. Making foolish promises, and then not keeping them. Betraying a confidence you promised you wouldn't. Flattery is a form of lying. Oh, you look so nice. And it's the most disgusting dress you've ever seen in your life. Making excuses. All of these are forms of lying. Don't lie. Speak the truth. Now, this this doesn't mean that we need to dump on people all the truth that we know about every given situation. That's not what he's telling us to do. There are certain times when it's appropriate for you to not tell the whole truth. 
in order to protect people in a holy way, in a righteous way, in a way that God protects you. That's not what he's speaking about. He's speaking about our propensity to try to be self-protective in lying so that things will work out better for us. Don't lie. We can't get away from the fact that lying is deeply rooted and an accepted part of the sinful world in which we live. I mean, it's what makes it hard, right? It's not just that we have our flesh. It's that we have a society around us where lying is just a part of, of the game. It's all a part of how we play life. That's why on one occasion Dan Rather tried to explain to Fox News why he thought Bill Clinton was an honest man, and he explained with these words, I think you can be an honest person and lie about any number of things. Instead of lying, however, the believer is to speak the truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, John 14, 17. God's word is truth, John 17, 17. When a person becomes a believer, he steps out of the domain of falsehood into the dominion of truth. And so every form of lying is inconsistent with the new self because it is inconsistent with the Holy Spirit because it is inconsistent with Christ. So the first characteristic that dresses our lives with the gospel is just speaking the truth. Be known as a person of your word, that your word is true. We're known as people who are truthful. But there's a second thing. Secondly, we dress our lives not only with truthful speech, but also with Verses 26 and 27, self-control, self-control. And look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry, and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, there is a kind of anger that is holy and proper in its place. And I've already mentioned it, but for example, Jesus got angry. I gave you one example already, but in Mark 11, 15, He got angry. He went into the temple and overturned all the tables. He did that twice that we're aware of in his ministry. The father became became angry all through the Old Testament. You read about that. And if we are imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1, we will sometimes be angry in a holy, righteous way. Sometimes we need the anger of John Wesley. Sometimes we need the anger of William Wilberforce. The personal and societal sins. Sometimes we need the anger of Martin Luther at doctrinal aberration. Proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and health. Read Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you? David knew there was a proper place for anger. To be scandalized at sin to be shocked by things that belittle the glory of God, there's an appropriate place for anger. We need to be careful here. We can easily allow a sense of holy anger to go wrong, to go bad. And it can happen before we even realize it. Frederick Buchner once said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun 
to lick our wounds, to smack our lips over grievances long past, to roll over our tongues the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are giving and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, however, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton or the carcass of the feast is you. You're hurting yourself. You're doing damage to your own soul. Unholy anger, most of all, hurts you. And secondly, the people around you. Solomon said, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. That's true. And there is a time to be angry. It's an appropriate place for anger. Some occasions call for holy anger. Righteous anger is the kind of anger that the Lord's people use when they are scandalized by evil, injustice, immorality, and ungodliness of every sort. We need to be careful not to let our holy anger turn into sin. And it can happen. And it can happen quickly. Well, how do we do that? How do we keep from allowing holy anger to turn into sin? Or allowing unholy anger to do more damage? Answer? Paul says, let the day of your anger be the day you deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it quickly. Don't let it simmer. Don't let it settle in and, be, and boil over and become something ugly that you only have to deal with later. And by the way, anger is the kind of emotion that Satan can take advantage of so quickly that you may not even realize when it's happening. Charles Hodge wrote, Anger, when cherished, gives the temper great power over us as it furnishes a motive to yield to his evil suggestions. When you're angry, you are most susceptible to the temptations that Satan and his minions bring. When you're angry, you just start letting your guard down. If you're not careful, you can let self-control go out to the window, and all you need is a little suggestion. And you can fly off in a way that you'll be so ashamed of. So ashamed of. Deal with it quickly. Deal with it quickly. Don't give the devil an opportunity. The word devil here is translated by Martin Luther as slanderer. He is the great accuser of the saints. And when we cling to our anger, we open the door to every kind of sin that naturally springs from it and gives him opportunity to slander all the more. This is really practical, folks, because of all, all of us struggle with sinful anger, do we not? All of us become angry from time to time. Holy anger is concerned about injuries done to other people. Holy anger is concerned about injuries done to the name of the Lord or to a brother or sister in Christ. The sinful anger is self-defensive, self-serving, resentful about what others have done to cause us harm. And sinful anger almost always leads to thoughts of revenge. That's why Paul had to write in Romans 12, 17 through 21, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved 
But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you open the door to anger and keep it open for too long, you will give the devil an opportunity. And the opportunity will probably take some form of revenge or intended revenge. And now you're in trouble. Now you're sinning. So if you're going to set the gospel on display in full dress in your life, we must be people who speak the truth and people who exercise self-control. It doesn't mean that we never get angry. It means that every time we feel that affection, that emotion coming up within our hearts, we ask ourselves, what kind of anger is this? I had to do that this week. Some of you know my family is on vacation without me. They like it that way, I think. My son and I are going to catch up with them today. On the way out there, I drove them out. I made an arrangement with Chris. Her and Josh got to drive in the good car, and I got what I have affectionately called the boo box, the van, where we have the twins and all the little ones screaming for hours. <laughs> Sorry, just the, just the memory of it brings back emotion. And by the time we got there and got settled into our place, I, I just about had lost him. <laughs> I know you can't imagine that, right? And the first thing I had to do when we came to pray for breakfast, this is great. Dads, if you lead prayer before a meal and give thanks, you know when your heart's not right with God, right? You know, what's the point of talking to him until you deal with the sin? We're all sitting outside, and breakfast is getting cold. And I said, okay, well, let's pray. But before we do, I need to tell you something. And I told him what Daddy did last night, all that yelling and stuff, <laughs> that was wrong. That didn't honor the Lord. It wasn't helpful to the situation. And will you forgive me? We have got to learn to live like that. It's not that we're going to live sinlessly. But we must continue to live the same way that we came to Christ, by repentance and faith. We exercise faith and repentance. A whole life should be like that. So that we become more and more and more like Christ and we teach our kids how to live by repentance and faith. Dads, if you never apologize to your kids, you're not teaching them to repent. If they don't see it in your life, they're going to assume that's not the normal way that men live. We don't say, I'm sorry. We don't say, will you forgive me? We don't confess our sins to one another. That's a scripture for everybody else, but not for the head of the household. And that's rubbish. Because they will become what you are. And that's a scary enough prospect in itself. Be angry. Sometimes our kids need to see anger. I think sometimes if they don't see fire in your eyes when you're dealing with their sin, they will not appreciate the fear of God. But you must be careful. You cannot allow holy anger to degenerate into sinful, selfish rebellion of heart. 
And so if we're going to set the gospel on display in full dress, we must be people who speak the truth and exercise self-control. But there's a third characteristic that should mark our lives. Verse 28, generosity. Generosity. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now here is a simple yet profound illustration of what Paul means when he speaks of the transforming power of the gospel. When a thief comes to know Christ, what should be the very first thing that's evidenced in his life that demonstrates a transformation has happened? He gets a job. And he starts to work. He doesn't steal anymore. And as a result of his hard work, he earns money. And now he begins to give and share and demonstrating the the generosity, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it should look like for all of us. When a thief comes to know Christ, he must take off like an old, stinky, lice-infested garment, that thieving, stealing lifestyle, and replace it with a new robe of generosity made possible by hard work. I would guess that most of us haven't a clue how rampant the problem of theft is in our country. There was a paper given at an American Psychological Association symposium, which I don't suggest you read, on employee theft, presenting a a breakdown um, of of the $8 billion that inventory shortages cost department and chain stores every year. How does it break down? $8 billion in losses. How does that break down? How do we account for that? Well, of those losses, 10% were due to clerical error. Number counters, bean counters, just got it wrong. Made a mistake. 10%. Shoplifting, 30%. Guess what got 60%? 60% of the losses, or $6 million a day, was due to employee theft. Stealing from the company you're working for. And it happens all the time. I read somewhere this week that many stores have had to charge 30% more than they otherwise would for what they sell just to make up for the loss of things that are stolen. You want to know why prices are so high in the department stores? It's a big problem in our time. And this is one of the top ten items, by the way, that God lists for us things not to do. See if this rings a bell. Thou shalt not steal. That's pretty clear. There's a second one like unto it, namely, thou shalt not covet. In other words, you're not allowed to take something that belongs to someone else, and you may not even relish the thought of getting what they have. We're not to covet. Oh, I wish I had that. Oh, I wish I had that. You remember the the scene, and I know I've kind of... Bash uh, Veggie Tales, but there's that one scene with Madame Blueberry, and she's got the pictures of all the neighbor's stuff, and she's got it on a lazy Susan so she can turn it around and just covet all her neighbor's good things. When a person comes to Christ, his attitude should change from a passion to get and get and get 
to a passion to give and give and give. We should be known as the greatest givers the world has ever seen. And the church always has been. We've always been the primary givers to need. But you know what? That's less and less and less true. I think I read somewhere recently that the average giver in your average church gives 2% of their income at the most, 1.5% of their income. Things have changed. And we give no more than the world gives. That's what Paul meant when he told Titus, urge bond slaves or employees to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Are you adorning the doctrine of God by the way that you live? Are you being careful when you're on the job not to take things that don't belong to you? We should be known as people who work hard to earn money, not just to pad our lives with comforts, but to experience the joy of meeting the needs of other people. Because Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Instead of being freeloaders and gold brickers, who are always cutting corners and never really giving the employer an honest day's work for a full day's pay, we should be known as dependable employees who work hard and give generously. That's how we adorn the gospel with our lives. And anything else is a reproach. The biblical call is to liberate ourselves from covetousness and grasping and to work hard so we can generously share with others. Generosity. Our lives should be marked so that when you hear the call, this isn't in my notes, but it fits this morning, when you hear the call from the pulpit that we've got a brother on the other side of the world who desperately needs a car, your thought would be, oh, I can't wait to get home to talk to my husband or my wife about how much can we give. Not, what do you think we could do that, that won't hurt us? But let's trust God for something. Let's trust God for something big. And let's give. Let's give even out of our own need and see God do something great for His own glory and for our own joy and for the good of a brother who struggles in ministry. That should be our response. Finally, we are not only to exercise truthfulness, self-control, and generosity, but the fourth and last thing, gracious speech. Gracious speech. And this will take up the whole last section here, so follow along with me. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Unwholesome talk here literally means rotten, putrid, filthy language. It's inappropriate for you, if you're a child of God, to speak words that are inappropriate. There are words that you do not allow your children to say because they are inappropriate in any setting. Do you say them? Do you use them? 
In my experience, this has been an especially difficult issue for some men who struggle with their language. And they only struggle with it in certain contexts, like when they're with the other guys. But you get with them in that context, and their language changes. And they feel the freedom to use words that are not becoming of one who has been miraculously born again of the Spirit. Shouldn't talk like that. This includes all foul language, but the emphasis is on a decay-spreading conversation which runs others down and delights in their weakness. This kind of rotten talk is bad for other people because it tears them down. But think about this. It's also bad for you. It's also bad for you. It's bad for you because when you tear a brother or sister down, or when you use rotten language, it does something that Paul describes here. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Now this is important, and I know it's late, but if you don't get anything from this message, get this. To grieve the Holy Spirit is to wound Him. It is to cause Him sorrow. And by the way, this is a really important verse when we consider the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Please, please don't refer to Him as it. It. You wouldn't refer to one of your children as an it. You wouldn't refer to your dad, I hope, as an it. As if he were some kind of impersonal force. He's the third person of the Trinity. And we know from the Bible that he has intellect and feelings and will. He works and searches and speaks and testifies and intercedes and guides. He loves to glorify Christ and he directs our service to God. We also know, however, that the Holy Spirit can be tested. He can be resisted, insulted, and he can be blasphemed. And so Paul warns us that our actions and attitudes are never done in a vacuum. We're never really getting away with it. They always have an effect, even when we cannot immediately see it. Our words and our actions, even when we're alone, have a a deep and profound effect on us. And one of the most significant effects of sin in our lives, whether it be how we speak or whether we're becoming sinfully angry or taking things that don't belong to us or saying things that aren't true or whatever the category of sin is, the reason that is important to us is because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Because while it's true that the Holy Spirit will never leave us, When he is grieved, he withholds the manifestation of his presence. We talk an awful lot about joy around here, do we not? Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. I preached about this just a couple of weeks ago. How do you keep your mind engaged and your heart aflame after the worship service is over? You remember that? We talked about the fact that our hearts are so quickly... Dull. They move toward coldness and dullness. Our minds tend to become disengaged from the things of the Spirit. Our hearts tend to become shrunk up to the things of God so that they don't, we don't marvel at them. We don't find ourselves praying, Oh God, help me to see Your glory. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word, yes, and in your world, yes. 
Help me to see it. Lord, help me, help me to be looking at the scriptures throughout the day. Don't let me be lazy today because I want to see your glory. I need the joy of being in fellowship with you. Because without it, I'm weak. I'm weak. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. But you can break fellowship with him real quick. And you don't have to have anybody else around in order to do it. How do we keep our heart warm and alive to God in the midst of the mundane activities of life? Well, one way is to discipline yourself to godliness. Employ the various means of grace, as the Reformers called them, in our lives, like reading the Bible, meditating on his word, prayer, fellowship, all the, what they call the ordinances of grace, things that move our affections toward joy in God. That's the positive side. We need to be doing those things, but there's a flip side to that. We need to flee, as Paul told Timothy, flee certain things. Flee youthful lusts. Flee the things that tempt you to sin the way you are most apt to be tempted to sin. And so if the fire of the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus is out. If your heart for God is cold. May I ask you a question? Could it be that what you are doing, things that you are doing, or attitudes that you are clinging to are grieving the Holy Spirit? He hasn't left you. He'll never leave you. But I ask you, is there anything that you are doing and not just the adults, but you children. Is there anything going on between you and your brother or you and your sister that is grieving the Holy Spirit? When you hear your dad in you know, your family worship time or your preacher on Sunday morning talk about the joy of knowing Jesus, and you maybe have tasted that a little bit, but you don't know where it is most of the time, could it be that you're grieving him? by the kind of jokes you tell, by the kind of attitude you have against one another? Could you be grieving him in the way that you use your time during the week? Could you be grieving him? I would dare say that's where your joy went. Are you lying to someone? Are you giving vent to your anger in an unholy way? Are you taking things that belong to someone else and justifying the sinful behavior with excuses? He made me angry. I love that one. He made you angry. That's not one we allow in our house. If you want to be truthful, you can say, he provoked me. And so we hear frequently, Daddy, he's provoking me. (laughs) Well, okay, that's the truth. He didn't make you angry. If you succumb to that provocation, then it's your own sin and you need to own it. But no one makes you angry. No one makes you steal. No one makes you stingy. And no one makes you graceless. Or maybe there is something else in your life that is grieving the Holy Spirit. Don't be surprised. You hear me talking about the joy of the Lord. You see people in this body who are excited about the Lord all the time. And you think, oh, they must have been born with that. No, they were born with Jeremiah 17.9, just as you. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? It's an awful thing. It's a wicked thing. It is not a God-exalting thing. Well, what do they have that I don't have? They have the Holy Spirit in their life, ungrieved. 
They have an ungrieved Holy Spirit in their life. A Holy Spirit who is alive and well. He always is. But we can sense Him. We know He's there. His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are a child of God. There are subjective things going on in our hearts that are good and empowering and nurturing and strengthening. But it doesn't happen by default. You know what happens by default? The words Paul uses here, verse 31, we're just going to rifle through these. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Charles Hobbes calls them all intimately related evils. Real quickly, bitterness means sharp or venomous. It's a kind of speech that is a corroding influence on the person who receives it. The command to lay aside every form of communication which corrodes our minds or wounds the feelings of other people. That's what he's talking about. Wrath comes from the word meaning to burn. Sometimes related or translated rage. The next one, anger, as Paul speaks of it here, is the unrighteous form of passion. Clamor. It's not a word that we use very much in our day. It expresses the idea of yelling and screaming at one another. I've counseled couples I mean, you expect this from children, but I've counseled couples who do this frequently. They throw plates at each other, they yell, and they scream. It should be no part of a believer's life. Don't be a screamer. Don't be a yeller. Don't cut wall in your house. Slander is the next word. You know what the Greek word here is? Blasphema. Slander. It's not referring to blaspheming God, but blaspheming another person. It's a speech that springs from the deep anger and is designed to injure. It's designed to wound. It's designed to hurt back. Malice is a general catch-all term that covers all of these kinds of sinful speech. It simply means bad or depraved speech. That is intended to cause harm. But instead of speaking like this, you're supposed to take that kind of stuff off. Like a jacket. Take it off. Lay it aside. We've got a new one for you. God is going to give you new clothes. And they look like this. Kindness. Verse 32. To be kind is to be useful. or determined to do good to other people. We pray this on Sunday mornings, every morning early when the elders meet. God, help us to be others-minded. To be reminded that we're here to minister to others and not to ourselves. Help us be kind. Help us be gracious. Tender-hearted is the next word. It's often a word translated compassionate, especially when someone is suffering. Especially when someone is suffering. Are you compassionate? Or do you see them as a problem with two feet on it? And forgiving simply means to pardon freely, just as God in Christ forgave you. One of the commentators I read emphasized the fact that God, apart from Christ, is not forgiving. He's not merciful to you. If you come to God apart from Christ, there is no mercy. But God in Christ has been infinitely compassionate to you, infinitely merciful. He is forgiving you of sins you have never confessed and sins that you have not even committed yet. Be forgiving. 
We are to speak to one another in such a way that our words become vehicles of grace. That's what he says. But only such a word is good for edification. Building up is the word, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace. You are to be a channel of grace with your words. Your words have supported those, uh, Eliphaz told Job, your words have supported those who stumble and have strengthened the faltering knees, Job 4.4. Colossians 4.6, the commentary on Ephesians says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person in each circumstance. Proverbs 12.18 says, The tongue of the wise man brings healing. That's how we should live. We're to be gracious with one another like this because that's how God in Christ treated you. That's how God in Christ treats us every day. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. And so how does your life appear to others this morning? Man, how does your life appear to your wife, your children, your unbelieving neighbors and co-workers? Does it adorn the doctrine of God? Does it set the gospel on display in full dress? Ladies, how does your communication adorn the gospel of God? Is it all about acclaiming the excellencies of Christ? Is it at least frequently about acclaiming the excellencies of Christ so that people know you as one who will likely say something good and encouraging about the Lord and challenge me in my faith when I talk to you? Or will you be someone that people go to when they have something bad to talk about? Some, some morsel of gossip or slander. Are you a person who is known for truthful speech, self-control, generosity, gracious communication? Or are you still wearing parts of the old wardrobe that God wants you to set aside and burn? That's what Paul is asking of us. That's what God is asking of us. This is the way we're supposed to be. When salvation came, we took off the old, we put on the new. And now every day it's a battle to put on the new clothes. Or he's going to say, if we ever get around to chapter 6, put on the armor of God. Before the gospel is ever heard from our lips, it should be unmistakably obvious in our lives. Is it? Is it? I pray that it is. And Father, we give you...